0: where would you go from there? Where would you go if you watched your best friend die? Moms, where would you go if you watched your firstborn be crucified? What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? That first Friday, it would have been awful. Terrible the Romans, they had perfected torture. They they had beat you. They had flogged you. And one of the worst parts would have been while you were sitting on a cross, the way you would have died is by not being able to breathe through asphyxiation. You couldn't pull your weight up on the cross any longer. And I imagine the women that were sitting there The disciples that were maybe scattered around, maybe even Jesus' own mother would have thought, man, I don't even remember him ever making a mistake. I don't even remember ever seeing him do anything wrong yet. I just watched him die the same death as a thief or a murderer. Friday would have been awful, painful, traumatic. John 19 says that the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And so what had to happen is they had to rush to get Jesus' Jesus' body off the cross and back into a tomb. The next day was a Sabbath, which meant you could do no work. And so if they didn't get his body off of that cross into a tomb by sundown, he would have to stay up on that cross for a whole other twenty-four hours. And I want you to imagine maybe what some of his friends were even focused on in that moment. It's that moment where you're so laser focused on just getting the task done, you can't even think about the emotions that you're feeling around you. You can't even start to feel the things that you would have wanted to feel in that moment. They just were focused on that one thing. And we've all been there, we've all been so um, lasered in on one thing that we just say, okay, we've got to get through this and we'll deal with the emotions tomorrow. We've all had those moments where we just had to push through and know that we'll have to process this later. And in my experience, there's always that one person that's still asking all the questions. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? What happens next? And I imagine if I'm putting myself in the disciples' shoes, I imagine they were just like, we've got to get this thing done. We've got to get him into this tomb. We'll deal with what happens tomorrow. We'll process all of these questions tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes. And just like every other Friday in the history of the world, Saturday comes next. And finally, the disciples have time to sit and to think. And they have time to think about what they witnessed the day before. And we talk a whole lot about Friday. What we don't talk a lot about is Saturday. What would that Saturday have been like for them? It would have been that moment after the chaos. Maybe you've been in a really heated or intense moment of an argument or a car wreck or a panic attack. And then there's just the silence or the calm after. And you can start to think and you can start to process, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And the big one, what do I wish would have happened. And I imagine they finally had the opportunity to start thinking about death and the death that they watched Jesus die. And I imagine they were thinking more than just a physical death. They were witnessing uh, some emotional death as well, the death of not just a relationship, but the death of a friend, the death of a vision that he carried, and the death of a dream. And as they processed that death, I have to imagine they started to ask some confusions. It wasn't just about the death that they had, but it would have been about the confusion and the questions that they couldn't get answered. And Easter is all about a celebration. The day of Easter is a celebration, but Easter was preceded by a day of confusion. It was preceded by a day of so many questions that would have gone unanswered. And that is the experience of our life, is uh, usually it's not the mountaintop of Sunday or it's the um, deep despair of Friday, but most of our life is lived somewhere in between, right? It's lived somewhere in between. It's in the middle of the the confusion or the lamenting. It's in the middle of the questions. It's often um, asking the tough things. Most of our life is not the Friday or the Sunday. Most of our life is lived in the midst of Saturday, in lament and in confusion, I, uh, I had a Friday uh, last summer, uh, June 29th, it was, it was the worst day I've ever had in my life last summer. I, uh, I got to wake up that morning and I, I visited a friend and um, he told me about uh, something that had happened in his life and, um, and it was really, really sad, it was awful. And I watched him wrestle with something that was likely going to change the rest of his life um, but I knew eventually it would bleed into mine, a friend that I really, really love and care for. And I'm still reeling from that in the afternoon, and I remember later that day, um, Catherine and I, after five years of what doctors called unexplained infertility, which isn't incredibly helpful, uh, Catherine and I had finally pulled the trigger and we'd um, gone after the thing. We'd written the check and we did something called IVF or in vitro. And I remember going home that afternoon after a rough morning and finally getting the email that we would find out if it worked or not. And, um, and I remember reading just the first four words of that email. This is our last shot. This is the final medical thing we can do. And I remember reading the email and it said, uh, we're so sorry, Catherine. And we didn't read any more of it we just started to cry we're so sorry Catherine and two of the worst things that have ever happened to me happened on the same day and that night I remember laying in bed and I was asking myself literally asking myself am I okay like checking in almost like an out of body experience am I am I okay like am I going to make it after today And I concluded that I was, and the adrenaline was there, and the the problem-solving had kicked in. What I wasn't ready for was the Saturday. What I wasn't ready for was June 30th. What I wasn't ready for is when the adrenaline had died down and the reality had set in. And that summer, last summer, I went through all five stages of grief, and I feel like I even added a sixth one, which was confusion. And I asked more questions than I've ever asked before. God, do you not think we would be good parents? Lord, don't you know that we were dreaming this dream together for you? God, everyone else seems to get good things, and you call kids good things. Why don't you want to trust us with that? Question after question after question, and we witnessed, and I witnessed the, the death of multiple dreams. I witnessed my, my Saturday, where I got to ask lots of questions And I had to face lots of answers that I didn't really like. The band can come back up. And I want to conclude um, talking about Saturday with the same question that the women were likely asking around the tomb. Where do we go from here? I'd asked myself that question last summer, and maybe you have to ask yourself that as well. Where do you go from here? In the midst of a Saturday, in the midst of lamenting, in the midst of sadness, where do we go from there? And I want you to imagine, put yourself in the story. I want you to imagine um, being one of his followers, one of the women that were there, one of the disciples, and you just watched your friend, or maybe you even watched your son die. Where do you go from there? Or maybe you even witnessed the death of a dream, because he was the alleged Messiah, and you thought that the vision was going to go so much further than what it did, and now it's over. And, uh, and lambs were being sacrificed all the time. Back at this area of the world. And so that was nothing new. But I imagine that they thought that this lamb was going to be different. I imagine they had to face all kinds of questions, wondering why wasn't this different? Why wasn't this lamb going to do something different? And I imagine throughout Saturday they finally concluded maybe, maybe he wasn't. Maybe this was just another routine. Sacrifice. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. Most think that's John, the one writing. The one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so the confusion actually doesn't stay on Saturday. The confusion even starts to bleed into Sunday. And it's uh, more death and more confusion. This time, it's the death of goodbye, the death of a a proper burial. And the confusion is all of these questions that would have been stacking up in Mary's mind. How did the stone get moved? Where did it go? Where did the body go? Where is Jesus? And she would have likely experienced not only the death of closure, but the death of a proper burial, the death of what that man deserved. It says so. Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Uh, the Bible, I think, is so true for so many reasons—prophetically, historically, archaeologically. Like we can start to see how things line up perfectly. I also believe the Bible's true because it tells a raw story, and John, in the most important story that he's ever told before, makes sure that you know he beat Peter in a footrace. And if that doesn't sound like a man, I'd like to imagine if I was a disciple of Jesus at that time, first of all, I probably would have won the foot race. I also know that what's true is I would have told you about it. I would have taken up some parchment just to make sure you knew that I was faster than Peter and John. And it said that he, John, bent over and looked into the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along him and went straight inside of the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And so there would have been more death, more confusion. And this time it's for Peter. Peter. He doesn't get to say goodbye, not even to the lifeless body of Jesus. And remember, Peter was the one that betrayed a loyal friend. And imagine being Peter in this moment. Because you didn't just betray a loyal friend, you betrayed your most loyal friend. Actually, it's possible the last time you made eye contact with him, you said that you didn't even know him, just to save yourself. Imagine the death that Peter would have experienced there, the death of not being able to say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. But you also, as you're reading this passage, you can start to piece together, maybe John and Peter are figuring something out. Towards the end of it, it almost sounds like they're saying, "You know, the linen wasn't quite right. It didn't look rushed. Actually, the way that it was set up, it looked, it looked almost intentional." I man, didn't he say he was going to come back? That's that's not possible. But man, over the last three and a half years, we saw him do so many impossible things. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. John's writing this, and John writes this about himself. He says, he saw and believed. Life immediately entered his heart. Immediately, John started to recognize everything that had led up to that moment led to this right here. This is a complete 180 with whatever John was feeling before. This is the moment that you thought your spouse forgot your birthday, but actually they were just throwing you a surprise that night. It was the moment you thought that you failed the test, you get it back, and it says A minus. It's in the company that they're doing all kinds of job cuts, and you get called into your boss's office, and you leave with a promotion. It was a complete 180 from what anyone expected. We've all had those nightmares that as we're living them at night, it's like this is going to change my life forever, and it's that unbelievable relief. I know we've all experienced this. When you wake up and you realize it wasn't real, things are not like that. And John says, I saw and I believed. And all of the death that had led up to that moment instantly got turned into life. Everything started to click into place. Jesus wasn't dead. His body wasn't stolen. Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. And in this world, and scientists, you should check me on this, but dead things usually stay dead right? But in the kingdom of God, it's actually not like that every time. In the kingdom of God, uh, life sometimes happens after death. See, in our world, death comes after life. But in the upside down kingdom, life comes after death. It's only after we die to ourselves we can experience the fullness of life. And Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But somewhere along that way, there was a death. But it was that death that led us now to the fullness of life that all of us can experience. Jesus was alive, and hope immediately entered John's body. Uh, This is is a little bit of my story. Just like John, I was going one direction, and uh, and something changed. And I grew up in the church church. For the first 20 years of my life, I would say that I theologically agreed with Jesus, but experientially agreed with the world. And and I was right on that fence. The problem with being on a fence is it, it hurts and it's not comfortable. And I was living between two different worlds. I was living enough in the world that I couldn't really fully experience God, or I didn't want to. And I was living enough in God to not really fully get to enjoy the world. So instead of living two different lives, I actually just was living death, right in the middle. Part of my story is um, at the beginning of my junior year of college, uh, one of my friends, she came to me, and it, wasn't, it was my roommate's girlfriend, actually. She sat all of the roommates down, and she said, look, I, I need to tell you why, um, why I've been so weird lately. And she had been. She had been super flaky. We couldn't get a hold of her for days on end. Her hair was doing weird things, and uh, and she sat us down and she said, "Look, um, this is a 19-year-old girl." She said, uh, "For the last year, I've been diagnosed with leukemia, and um, and they finally have just said there's nothing else that they can do." 19-year-old girl. She said, um, "She said they don't think that I'll make it to my 20th birthday." which was in December, and she told us this in October. And I'm sitting on the fence, mind you. I'm not really all into this Jesus thing, thing completely. But I, I knew that there were stories in the Bible of healing, and I was just familiar enough with some of the rumors that maybe it was still true that uh, some of us got together, them more going after Jesus than I was, and there was an urgency of like, I guess we should probably pray. I guess we should probably see if, like, God still does these things. And so we fasted uh, all day, and we prayed over this sweet girl, Alexa, that night, and God really moved. It's the only picture I have of Alexa and I. (laughs) If I had multiple pictures, I would still show you this one. (laughs) We prayed over Alexa, and... um, and man, I remember when we broke the fast, we went to Qdoba because all fasts end with burritos. And, uh, and I remember as Alexa was off to the side, some of us were talking and it's like, man, I think that God really prepared her. God really uh, moved. He prepared her for, for death. We didn't know what a healing looked like. And so we knew that bitterness had been dealt with like any 19-year-old with leukemia. She had bitterness to deal with when she was facing God and it felt like God really moved. Four or five days later, um, she called me. She was in Seattle. She didn't normally call me, so that was strange. And she said, Chris, I have no idea what's going on. She said, "Um, I'm in Seattle. I'm at a new doctor. I'm doing my eighth and final chemo. The first seven didn't work. And the doctor keeps telling me that I'm in remission. She said, I've been arguing with him for 30 minutes, but I know what my leukemia looks like. And I just looked at the scans. She said, Chris, it's gone. And guys, the the leukemia, it was actually gone. And it never came back. This was taken a couple years after we prayed for Alexa. Come on. And in that moment, in that moment, life entered a heart. But it wasn't actually Alexa's. It was mine. Because I remember exactly where I was. I'm on the phone. And as she's telling me that the leukemia is gone that the doctor says she's in remission. I remember where I was, and I remember thinking, this is more fun than any party I've ever been to. This is more fulfilling than any accomplishment I've ever had. And in a moment, life entered my heart. And I said, if that guy can do that, then I'm all in for him. If that guy can do that with leukemia, if he can do that for that girl, I am all in for following him for the rest of my life. And in a moment, just like John, I got to experience what he saw. Or I got to experience maybe what he heard. I heard and I believed. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus says. That's what the miracle of the resurrection is. Is that in a moment, everything can change. And the miracle of the resurrection is that even today, April 17th, 2022, we can see and believe. You can see and believe. And we can see a man who's not a myth, but is actually the savior of the universe. That's a little bit of of my story, but I'm guessing if you've been following Jesus for a while, that's some of your story as well. Maybe there's no Alexa, there's probably no leukemia, but you were going one direction, and an encounter with Jesus changed everything. And suddenly, life was brought back into your bones. And that's the miracle of Jesus, is that we can experience and encounter him with a relationship that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's totally fine. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I actually want to say, uh, I don't want to oversell Jesus to you. Um, Fridays still happen. Saturdays still happen. We followers of Jesus are not immune to tragedy. My life is still hard at times. In some ways, I think it's harder. Uh, my marriage, it still takes work. Um, It's still, uh, at times I get sad or stressed. My home still needs repairs. Jesus doesn't, like, do those in the middle of the night. It's still really hard for me to dunk, so. But ever since I got that phone call, I've been living in the reality of hope. I've had moments that feel a little hopeless, but I haven't been hopeless since that day I got that call because everything I see now is through the lens of hope. And if you're following Jesus, that's your story, too. Everything has this veil of hope, and you don't ever have to be hopeless again. I haven't been hopeless since the day that I started wholeheartedly following Jesus. That's my story. Maybe that's your story. But if it's not your story, that's okay. But I want you to know that, like, that's a decision. That's a part of your story that could be true for you. You can enter into relationship with Jesus. You don't ever have to be hopeless again. Hopelessness doesn't have to be your story any longer. Uh, when I was in college, I, I studied finance and economics, and uh, that was my first job out of school. and uh, And I obviously am not in that industry any longer, but I, I still love it. Every night, I read the Wall Street Journal. Not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm a blast at parties. You guys should totally <laughs> invite me over. I'm awesome. And, uh, and I would say, for the most part, because I try to stay up on this stuff, I can speak most of the, like, financial or economic language. Um, I know the difference between an EFT, an index fund, a mutual fund. Um, I could tell you if you really wanted to know how to trade options, if you wanted to, like, trade options on stocks, if you were aggressive. I understand the difference between a Roth and a traditional 401k. Uh, bond yields are a little confusing, right? But I understand them. It was until about 2017 that I would say I understood most of the financial world, and then y'all threw crypto at me, (laughs) and that didn't make any sense. I didn't like it. You threw it at me. I didn't like it, but I studied it. I watched a couple documentaries. I read a little bit. A friend bullied me into buying some. I'd say I understand it, mostly. And it was until about this time last year that I started hearing something I'd never heard before. This time last year, I would say I understood most of the financial world, and then you all came up with NFTs, <laughs> and I have no idea what that is. And I know it stands for non-fungible token, but like no one understands what that is. No one even knows what that means. What is an NFT? Is it a picture of the monkey? Is it a picture of the picture of the monkey? Nobody actually knows what an NFT is, I'm pretty convinced. Here's what I do know, and stick with me for a second. Hope, hope is like an NFT. Hope is like an NFT. You might not fully understand it. It is incredibly difficult to describe, but they're real. And hope is real. And I know NFTs are real. From the bottom of my heart, I know NFTs are real. Because this kid is close to owning a yacht, and I still owe 80% on my mortgage. So NFTs are so real. They are real. I just do not understand them. And at the same time, hope, I believe, is even more real. (laughs) Hope is so real. Because Mary couldn't find the body, because John saw and believed, because the tomb was empty, hope actually is alive. And because a man, a man who is thought to be like you and me, because a man came back from the dead, that means something. That means that miracles exist. Now, follow this logic. And if miracles exist, if miracles exist, then that must mean that there is something outside of the natural world. And if there is something outside of the natural world, and when we read about that, or let's call it him, God, when we read about God outside of the natural world and we read how good he is, that means that you can have hope. You can have hope because there is something outside of the natural world and he loves you and he pursues you and he came to give you the fullness of life. He came to bring you hope. And because hope is alive, we don't ever have to be hopeless again. Isaiah says this, In the Old Testament, he says, But you who hope in the Lord will renew your strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. David says this. David's like almost preaching to his soul. He says, soul, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He's literally preaching to his soul. Put your hope in God. Paul, in the New Testament, he says this. He says that God is described, he describes him as the God of hope. And then later on, he says that we can be overflowing with that same hope. Now, um, hope hope might not force your kids to behave. Hope's not going to get you on the honor roll, and you certainly cannot buy a yacht with hope. But hope does fill you with assurance. Hope brings peace to anxious thoughts. Hope makes the reality that you are deeply, deeply loved by the Father so, so real. And because hope is alive, hopelessness doesn't have to be part of your story any longer. We're going to go back into worship. But here's what's true, is because the tomb is empty, that doesn't just mean that dead things can come back to life. It means something so much deeper than that. It means that hopelessness never has to be a part of who we are any longer. Because Jesus came back to life, The resurrection is real because Sunday morning is a day that's actually worth celebrating. We don't ever have to be hopeless again. We get to experience the fullness of life.